Lord God, we thank you for this covenant renewal that is set before us today, and we pray that you would renew us afresh in you as well. We ask this in Jesus' great name, the mediator of the new covenant. Amen. 1965, Four Tops released I Can't Help Myself, subtitled Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, and the Four Tops are one of my favorites, in case you don't know. And in that song, Levi Stubbs, the lead singer of the Four Tops, sang of the Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, I'm tied to your apron string, and there's nothing that I can do. We talk of marriage as tying the knot. We sing together as a church sometimes, blessed be the tie that binds. And I entitled the sermon today, Moorings, referring to the lines, the knots, the way that a ship is secured so that the ship is safe when it is docked and when it is in port. In Exodus 24, not Exodus 34 that we just read, in Exodus 24, the covenant knot was tied between God and Israel. It was a big event, and I'll just remind you of it. On that day when the, the covenant ceremony was done, there were altars that were built and pillars that were erected. There were sacrifices and there were offerings that were done. There was the writing down of the Book of the Covenant that Moses had received from the Lord, and then there was the reading of the Book of the Covenant, and there was blood, lots of blood. In fact, when I preached on Exodus 24, we baptized a Kirkland baby, uh, speaking of all of that blood that was sprinkled around the altars and then on the people as well. It was a big day, and it was a big deal, and it was a big ceremony when God tied that knot with Israel. And in addition to those things, vows were taken. There was a pledge of allegiance on the part of Israel that day. They twice repeated, said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So the bride took that vow. And on the honeymoon, she, which is to say Israel, which is to say us, she was unfaithful. She was disloyal. She played the harlot. And when Moses came down from the mountain with the law in his hands, he shattered it. He broke it, symbolically showing the breaking of the covenant. The ties were severed. The moorings were cut. So when a major corporation learns that they're of the misdeeds or perhaps the miswords of their spokesperson. They cut the ties. They sever the relationship. They say things like, we have ended our relationship with such and such. His words and his actions do not represent us. 
and such the situation after the golden calf. Now, we've traced our way through the sections that I've mentioned to us already. We saw how the intercession of Moses on behalf of the people saved them from the wrath of God and from the destruction that God would have otherwise executed upon them. That's a good thing. We likewise saw that the friendship between God and Moses not only extended to the fact that the people would not be destroyed, but also to the fact that God would continue to go with the people. And then the third thing that we saw is that, again, through the prayers of Moses and through the work of Moses and the name of the Lord, that God would be with them, not only as a God who was waiting to pounce on the first mistake that they would make as a people when he was with them, but rather he would continue on in this journey with them as a forgiving God. Those three things have been established. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, that's great. That's the heart of the matter, right? That's enough. That ought to be enough for anybody to have heard those things. But it's not enough. And Moses recognizes that it's not enough. His last words in the petition in in verse 9, and verse 9 kind of outlines that structure that I was just talking to us about. Verse 9, please go in the midst of us. That's a repeated one. We've dealt with that one. For it's a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and sin. That's the, the third one that we dealt with. And then this last petition is the key one to understanding everything that follows. Take us for your inheritance. God, you know who we are. And we know who we are as spiritual adulterers, as idolaters. Will you reseal with us? Will you make it official? Will you, will you remarry us? Will you renew covenant with us? Will you say it? Will you write it down? Will you sign it? That's what the last part of this chapter is about. This is the capstone of the reconciliation that has gone on for the last three chapters. It's the highlight. Verse 10, God's response. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. You'll see what an awesome thing it is that I will do for you. And then back down, uh, down further in verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. God has them write it down. Now, you and I, when we read through a section of Scripture like this, perhaps we read through it kind of quickly. One of the reasons for that, perhaps, is we're not really into formality. Formality really doesn't mean a lot to us, so we kind of look at this section. We're not familiar. We don't use covenant language every day. We don't talk about sealing covenants, making covenants every day. And besides, all of the laws that are described between the two verses that I just read are ones that we've heard before. 
right? I've, I've preached on all of these. I'm, by the way, just so you know, not going to preach on all of the laws that we just read because we've preached on them throughout Exodus. There's nothing new that is contained here. The words of the Book of the Covenant and their words of the Ten Commandments that are reiterated in this renewal of the covenant that God is making. But you might read through it quickly and go, okay, the story's kind of come to, a, to its end. With that great appearance of God, that great name declared by God, we've reached the end point here. But I would say this to us, that this covenant-making ceremony that we see here in Exodus chapter 34, while it is obviously not full of as many elements as we witness when we look together at chapter 24, the initial covenant-making and all the things that I articulated a little bit earlier from that chapter, it is somehow, it seems to me, even more precious than the original covenant-making because Exodus 34 takes place in the shadow of broken promises. And that gives me hope. To make it personal, that gives me hope for me. And it gives me hope for Mark and for Lauren and for Claire and for Miles and for all of us who sat here and made promises and recognized that in the past we've taken those promises, those vows about our own children, about other people's children in the church, and I've broken those. Jesus didn't die for me when I was in a spiritually high moment saying, all you have said I will do and I will be obedient. He didn't die for me when I was at my best. He did not die for me when I was on my best behavior. Instead, according to Scripture, Romans chapter 5, he died for me when I was a weak, ungodly, unrighteous sinner. God was not, is not, and will never be surprised at my condition. God did not enter into covenant with us, get a little ways down the road, and think, man, that guy or that girl is a lot worse than I thought they were. I thought this covenant would go okay, but they're really bad. This is the lesson of covenant renewal. There are lessons to be learned in covenant making. There are lessons, different lessons, to be learned in covenant renewal. God knew what he was getting when he tied the knot with Israel. And he knew what he was getting when he tied the knot with you. He's not an employer who has hired someone to do a job and is disappointed when the performance and the person don't match up to the resume and the interview. He is not a spouse 
who got into a relationship, and it turns out her husband isn't everything that she thought he would be. God is not that. Remember what we have said as we have moved our way through this particular section of Scripture, these three chapters. These three chapters are anthropomorphically written. A lot of letters in that word. Written attributing human attributes to God. Anthropomorphically written as if God is progressively working through unexpected twists and turns in the plot line and then responding to them in time as he considers what has happened and what Moses has done, and then he makes a decision about what he will do at that particular time. What is he going to do with the characters in the story? It is written in that way, but it is time to step back from that and to look at the whole witness of Scripture and to understand with full clarity that the omniscient one is not and was not surprised. He was not surprised by Adam's sin, by Eve's sin. He was not surprised when Israel played the harlot with the golden calf. And he is not surprised by you and by all of the sins that you have committed since the day when you believed in Jesus Christ or since the time of your baptism, if you can remember those vows that you yourself took or that you took on behalf of your children. He's not surprised that you sinned after that. God is not learning about Israel here. It reads that way, but it's to make us think. God is not discovering some new dark part of the heart of His covenant partner. Israel is learning about Israel. Israel is learning about God. Think about this for a moment. The sins that Israel committed prior to the incident of the golden calf. Now, we're generalizing here, but let's just articulate them because we're all familiar with them. If I asked you real quickly, what are the sins that Israel was guilty of prior to the golden calf? Well, all of us would quickly say out grumbling, complaining a lack of faith, a lack of trust in the promises of God, challenging the leadership of Moses, challenging the will of God, challenging somebody's directions, whether God's or Moses or whoever seems to be leading them to these places in the wilderness. They're bad sins, to be sure, but the golden calf and all that accompanied it 
namely the setting that is all around the golden calf happening as it were right in the shadow of the presence of God on top of the mountain having heard the laws of God articulated and all of the signs and all of the wonders that were done and accompanied the giving of that law. Well, that reveals for Israel a new understanding of the depth of her depravity and our depravity. See, there's a few instances in Scripture that kind of form the touchstone instances by which we understand sin. Certainly, Adam's is one of those, Sodom and Gomorrah is one of those, and this is one of them. This is one of the things that you're, again, I I know I've said this before, but it's one of the things where we're not supposed to just look at them and say they were bad and they did poorly here. We're supposed to see in this the mirror of our own heart and the reflection of our own rebellion, our own spiritual idolatry and heart adultery in the story that has taken place before us. We, like they, deserve wrath and destruction. But God renews covenant. And that's good news. When God covenanted with you, He knew it. He knew your sin and the depth thereof. And think about this and let it sink in. God knew your sin and the depth thereof, the sins that you had committed in the past up to that point, the sins that you were currently engaged in at that particular time, which you would struggle, some of which you would probably overcome, others of which you're probably still struggling with them to this day. And he knew the sins that you will commit. Your sins never catch God off guard. He never says of your sins, didn't see that one coming. Had I known he would have done that? Now, we might do that. We're finite. We're human, right? You wouldn't hire the employee that you knew was going to steal significant things from you. But God covenanted with us with all of that knowledge. And he's going to take you, and he's going to take you out of darkness, and he's going to lead you into light, and he's going to take you home. And as he takes you home, what he is going to do with you is the exact same thing that he did with Israel. Namely, he's going to show you just how bad you are. He's going to show you the depth Sometimes I like to say you. Sometimes I like to say me. Let me go back to me personally. He's going to show me the depth of my sin. And as he reveals that to me, and I go, I can't believe how deep it is. Then what he says is, I renew covenant so that you can see how great the love of your Savior is, how great a salvation has been, in fact, accomplished for you by Jesus Christ. And that's the way it works. And that hurts. There's a question 
that remains from our passage. And if all of this depends on God's covenant and finally on Jesus, what then do we do with this passage and all of its admonitions, its warnings, its commands, its instructions that are contained here, that, compromise, that comprise the bulk of this text? Well, what is clearly rejected in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the idea that God's covenantal faithfulness somehow gives us a free pass. That because God is a forgiving God and Jesus is a great Savior, that therefore we have the latitude to worship how we want to worship, where we want to worship, when we want to worship, with whom we want to worship, or that we have the latitude to live the way we want to live. Just to refer to these words in summary, what God is trying to do, and, and it, it seems like a smattering of laws, as I said, collected from both the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant that are represented in that section there between the, the covenant bookends that we read, but a lot of them are directed specifically to the issues that surrounded the worship of the golden calf. At the heart, that one verse that says, do not make a metal image of me. And then all of the other ones about how to retain and enjoy covenantal exclusivity with God. Don't enter into covenant with other people. Don't follow what other people are doing. Be a distinct people uncorrupted by the practices that you will see around you. And as we, if we were going to look at them in, in depth, we would have to reflect on the question, okay, what of this applied to them in their old covenant setting and what of it applies to us? Because you can see with a quick reading of this that some of these are uniquely Israel in the land issues. Others of them are eternal issues for now the people of God in the new covenant. It's a wonderfully complex question that we wrestle with all the time. How do we be the people of God in a land without borders, where we live in the midst of people that do not know Him? God does not leave His bride in the brothel. That's essentially what this is saying. Rather, he takes his bride home, even if it is a long way home. And on the way, he instructs the bride. He purifies the bride through his word, through his law, and even more so for us, though for them as well, through the working of his spirit in the hearts of those who believe. God has brought us to His home. You're, you're the church, the household of the living God. Now we're in process. We're being built up right now as the household of God. Maybe we can think of this as the foyer of the household of God. But in this place, wherein you and I are gathered together, God, through a whole variety of circumstances, bringing us to this place, bonds are formed, knots are tied between us. 
moorings are secured, and we together celebrate covenant renewal. We celebrate covenant renewal in each service as we gather together and work through the covenant that God has made with us. We celebrate covenant renewal together every time we confess our sins and then we partake later of the Lord's Supper, the Supper of the New Covenant. We celebrate covenant renewal when we rejoice in those who, who join the church through baptism. In covenant renewal, what God does, and do not underestimate the significance of it, is he makes it official. He signs his name to that which he has promised, and he says to us, indeed, you are my inheritance. This, this is what is above the signature. He saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together.